within the furthest regions of experience, of sensations rim, our gifts are boundless. You're not going to say, we have such great sights to show you? No, man, I'm not going to pander. Okay. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, still in San Diego, California. That's right. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. We will be continuing our October Horror Auteur Director's Deep Cuts. This week, we're talking about David Cronenberg. For the main review, we'll be reviewing the rebooted Hellraiser movie uh, that uh, came out direct to Hulu. David Bruckner. That name sounds familiar. He's one of those VHS guys. Ah, uh, Along okay. with, like, Ty West and Adam Wingard and... Um, oh, okay, he did uh, The Signal and The Ritual. And The All Ritual right. and Southbound. He's done a lot of indie horror Okay. So, right. yeah, he actually has a pretty big pedigree uh, going into this. So, we weren't going to do a Clive Barker deep cuts, mostly because he doesn't have that many. But we will be talking about him at least adjacently. Uh, I mean, I saw Rawhead Rex. Right. Okay. Way back in the day. And I've seen... Uh, Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed, so... And I guess, to some extent, the Candyman movie counts, even though it's, like, based on a short story, adapted and readapted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we'll be talking about uh, Mr. Barker a little bit later in the show. Let's go ahead and start our discussion on David Cronenberg, and we'll start like we did last time, where... Uh, I did ask listeners uh, to weigh in, so a couple people participated in that. I asked people, what is your favorite David Cronenberg film? But friend of the show, Patrick, says, I thought deep on this. I want to say Dead Ringers because it disturbed me the most, and I think it's his best work, but I've seen The Fly like 50 times, so The Fly. And then I believe on your repost, uh, Todd says, I'm going to lose a lot of street cred here, but the only Cronenberg movie I've seen is A History of Violence, uh, and you know, which is a very good one. Quite a bit later in his career, but uh, a very good yeah. movie. And on Instagram... Another vote for History of Violence by Paige Turna. Okay, cool. Uh, and then in that Halloween Facebook group, so Brandon Hall says, uh, my favorite all time is Dead Ringers, but every one of these is an if it was on TV, I couldn't leave until it was over banger. <laughs> um. He also says, but my deepest cut answer is probably They Came From Within or Rabid. I remember being so confused by Marilyn Chambers in that movie after growing up sneaking Cinemax. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. And uh, Carlin Donovan. So we have, these are both people who've taught film classes that we were in at ISU. Uh, Carlin says, yeah. uh, of this batch... Uh, and she means the picture I posted. The Fly is a favorite, 
But sometimes when I'm walking around looking for something, I'll say, Ellie, Ellie, out loud, because it's very sad. I lost something important sound. Um, and then she also says, uh, I'm going to rewatch Spider tonight, though. Thanks for the inspiration. Mm. So a lot of love for Dead Ringers, like way more than I would have expected. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Dead Ringers was a deeper cut for me, at least. I had not watched it until until you assigned us this little project. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's so a... I, yeah, I do think that's that one's interesting. It's a well-regarded movie amongst his work, and, you know, Criterion picked it up a long time ago, made it to Laserdisc before a lot of his work, that kind of stuff. And we'll get into it, you know, more in depth when we kind of talk about his career overall. But it just seems like something in the air of 2022 or something is bringing that movie to the forefront in a way that like every once in a while, one of his movies, you know, for a year or two, everyone started talking about crash again or every, every once in a while people just like, you know, but video dream though. And <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, a handful of his that are always amongst the top five or so that people talk about, but yeah, you know what? What do you think is the the best way to sort of contextualize uh, David Cronenberg? Because I think amongst the masters of horror set, and I'm putting that in air quotes, he has had the most varied career trajectory. Oh, interesting. Okay, I mean, and I would say that he's. He's always kind of had I, one foot in and out of, I mean, everything from like exploitation schlock to art house prestige movies and everything. Well, what in I what I think what I think is interesting about David Cronenberg is of the of the movie like of the directors that you know of like you said the air quotes masters of horror that you're talking about. Right, his uh, peers a, like Carpenter and Craven and and uh, Landis and you know whoever else. Yeah, to to me, Cronenberg is interesting because I feel like he has the most thesis among his work. Like I even even though it varies in genre and it varies in um, budget and things like that. Right. Uh, all of his stuff is very interested in kind of what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. um, e even not just the uh, body horror stuff, although that is, you know, a little more visible in the work. But it, it just he has this way of examining, like, what is a person? Is is it just sort of the body they're walking around in? It, you know, is there such a thing as a soul like uh, all of his work, I think, is is at least somewhat interested in exploring that question. Right, especially in terms of identity. Yeah. And a lot of his movies, there's certain themes that, I, that he returns to. Um, and you're right. I think all of his movies, he kind of finds a way to, to fit in his, his thesis. Yeah, um, and, and I just think that's interesting. Whereas... I, I don't think a lot of these other these other guys have a, a sort of a clear 
through line like that, you know? Yeah, or at least um, not as consciously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll see, you'll see uh, from him. I think the, you know, the body horror stuff is definitely. I mean, I I don't know if people talked about body horror before his movies. Of course, it existed in in some form or another before his movies because he was sort of riffing on, um, you know, various sci-fi tropes uh, and whatnot before him. But he's really the one who kind of uh, popularized that term, I think, or brought that uh, into the forefront of criticism as a as an idea or film. Yeah, theory. and and he definitely has like his own version of it, you know, like right. like uh, uh, he is to body horror what Monet was to impressionism. You can tell you can tell a Cronenberg when you're watching it, right? And or he put a stamp so firmly on that that when people even approach that, the term Cronenbergian comes to mind. Exactly. I don't know if you saw this tweet make the rounds after Nope came out. Um, Jordan Peele's Nope, which we reviewed earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I don't know if this was a, like a joke or a bit. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with Adam Ellis? Uh, uh, he, no. He's a cartoonist. He used to write for BuzzFeed. Anyway, he when it came out, he said, I know this is a hot take. But at what point do we declare Jordan Peele the best horror director of all time? Can you think of another horror director that had three great films, let alone three in a row? I remember this tweet. Yeah, that was... Yeah, yeah, and uh, Jordan Peele... That was one of those, like, villain of the day tweets where Uh, where people piled in on him and stuff. Well, the, the reason I bring it up is because... I immediately thought of David Cronenberg. He had a run in the fucking late 70s to early 90s. It was just incredible. Uh, You know, 79 was The Brood. 81 was Scanners. Then Videodrome. Then The Dead Zone. Then The Fly. Then Dead Ringers. Like, yeah, that's what? Five classics right there? And they all came out like one after the other? Right. You're correct. I mean, that mean. Yeah, so <laughs> I think the general answer to that question by most people oh, yeah, was yeah. I, like, I, uh, watch more movies. But yeah, I mean, even Jordan Peele responded. He said, uh, sir, I beg you, please put the phone down. Right. Uh, right. You know, he, he, he didn't want, he definitely didn't want to try to claim that mantle. Right. Uh, especially after, <laughs> you know, it, and that's why I say I'm like, I'm not even sure if the you know, he's sort of a humorist and a contrarian, so I don't know if it was even meant to be taken totally seriously. I just I just thought it was interesting that um, I also thought of Carpenter, who has de- mm-hmm. you know definitely had more than three amazing movies, but not in a row like that. Like, I, I don't know. That's what caught me off guard when I was thinking of Cronenberg is it was just like one after the other. Well, you know, I think there's a the reason why he had such a hot streak for as long as he did is he was able to, he was sort of in like the Goldilocks zone of marketability and popularity because he was making genre movies that could sell on a premise to the like horror crowd or to the sci-fi crowd or whatever. And 
he could bring what he does to it. You know, it's very hyper intellectual, cerebral style. Idiosyncratic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think he was able to kind of just work on his craft, um, sort of unadultered for mm-hmm. X amount of years. You know, he comes, he's from Canada. So his earliest work, where he was really kind of finding his voice, it was sort of a ma- made away from the general public. Like people caught up with, with they came from within or shivers if you're in in Canada or rabid and and he made that weird car movie Fast Company. It was just kind of like a a, a roadster exploitation movie. So he was able to kind of like learn how to be a director in Canada, and then after he got enough attention and his work started to get out there. Then he you know, was welcomed into Hollywood where he was just kind of doing his own thing. Uh, I guess that's as good of a place to start as any. Let's, let's go ahead and get into the deep cuts here. Um, sure, yeah. Let's start with uh, rabid of these, of the three uh, deep cuts that I had listed. This is the only one I had not seen yet. And I mean, there's other movies of his I still have to catch up with. I've never seen M Butterfly. I've never seen Existence. Actually, um, that's one I always try to see, and then it's not streaming anymore. Oh, I thought I I thought I tried to assign that as a homework once, but well, hold on to be, that if I... you know for down the road. Rabbit. This is a kind of a zombie movie. Like I don't think people talk about it that way, and because it well, kind it... of isn't. It's interesting because it's it's kind of a zombie movie. It's mm-hmm. kind of a vampire movie and it's it's got a some of the one of the weirder sort of body horror conceits I've seen from from a Cronenberg movie. Like he it, yeah. you can tell that his idea of it hasn't finessed a lot yet. Mm-hmm. Um uh and and you can it's kind of fun cuz this movie's a little raw. Um pun very much intended (laughs) yeah it's very interesting because it is a zombie movie so if you haven't seen it the premise uh, marilyn chambers uh gets into a motorcycle accident outside of a plastic surgery resort hospital yeah uh and so they are the closest people to operate on her they give her these skin grafts which gives her this like parasitic appendage in her armpit mm-hmm. that That's like a like drinks yeah that yeah. drinks people's blood like a mosquito and then they they get this strain of unidentified rabies that they spread through biting and and die out so it's also like kind of a plague movie it's kind of wild yeah and it all takes place in like these uh around Montreal and I mean, it is definitely a Cronenberg movie. Even as this far back, it has the hallmarks of all of his stuff. You know, people. Wh- another one of his themes that I think doesn't get brought up as often is there seems to be a questioning or or a distrust of institutions. Oh, and sure. Yeah. The way that, uh, you know, and this, you know, fits into the sci-fi world like a glove, but 
a lot of these movies, there's there's this kind of side-eyeing of the professional class or the owner class or what have you. And they're sort of a disregard or um, a disrespect for, I guess, natural evolution sort of leads to these terrible experiments gone wrong and what have you. Again, like classic sci-fi stuff, but even when he kind of leaves the pulp sci-fi world into other genres, that sensibility follows him. But you can see that yeah. here. I mean, it's, it's very interesting watching this post-COVID because the, there's, they're talking about vaccines, they're talking about vaccine passports, they're ta- and this would have been yeah. shortly after, I mean, probably, what, 20 years or so after the uh, smallpox vaccine was uh, given to pretty much everybody, which eradicated it at the time. It was yeah, like the mid-50s was, or so uh, when our parents were kids. Sure, um, yeah, because so this was almost this was this was seventy seven, so it was almost the eighties. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I mean, for sure, like it, it is weird that. Well, I mean, part of it's interesting how something like that is so cyclical. Yeah, um, and you know, it, look at us here in twenty twenty two. We were still completely sort of caught off guard. I mean, and yeah. obviously this. You know, the board game rules behind how infection works here and stuff is very different from any kind of real virus that we know of. Well, yeah, I I mean, in reality, I think this strain of rabies would have probably burned itself out so quickly because of just how how fast it uh, uh, gestated and then everybody who got it died. You right. Know, so it wasn't like a zombie virus where they're going to keep walking around the the living dead forever. Right. You know, so the, the, it sort of the, had this very fast shelf life. The X Factor being Marilyn Chambers, who's walking around, uh, not a zombie, Continuing but rather this, this carrier. And there's also, again, uh, a trope that returns in other Cronenberg movies, this psychosexual angle to it, where the act of penetration from her to her would-be victims and the way that she uses her sexuality to sort of lure people in like a, you know, like a spider almost or black widow. Well, it's also interesting because, um, yeah, she, she does that, but she also purposely putting herself into these sort of dangerous situations where she, you know, she finds these creeper guys because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to infect her boyfriend. She doesn't want to uh, kill her friend. You know, like, so she's at a certain point, she sort of becomes aware of what's going on, you know, with her body starts to prey upon these people. You know, like she goes to an adult film hoping like for some creep and sure enough, one shows up. So there's also this element of, you know, sexual politics at play here. Yeah. In all of these movies, there are these, you know, uh, uh, men in of uh, power, men who control sort of the the rooms that they're in, mm-hmm. uh, taking advantage of women. And you know, this one just happened to have a woman who was was capable of fighting back. But um, it seems to me that it's analytical. Um, like I don't know if he's necessarily taking us. 
hard stance on anything so much as just like this is what people do. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean there's always a certain level of detachment to his to his study of human nature and he kind of creates these wild circumstances to see how the battle of the sexes play out in them. But you know, there are certain movies like I would say The Brood probably most prominently. Um Sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, even The Brood has Oliver Reed as yeah. this therapist who's kind of, you know, overreaching and kind of a Svengeli fin- type. Yeah, and yeah. and damaging uh the main woman's psyche, you know, bringing up all these traumas in a way that is clearly not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so I I don't know, to to me it seems for the most part I it seems like most of the men aren't great. <laughs> No, they're not. You know, in the case of The Brood, you know, it's definitely like a scorned wife, post-divorce, gone to the nth degree, where she's now creating mutant children to hunt her ex. Yeah, Um, yeah, she's literally birthing evil. Right. uh, Out of spite. And then in the case of something like Videodrome, where it's, um, you have Deborah Harry, who is kind of this mysterious femme fatale, but she publicly faces as this sort of like uh, conservative finger wagger, but then behind the scenes, she's really like a super freak and wants to get down in the weirdest ways. I don't know. Yeah, I think it is probably more so. It's more so sort of studying human nature for uh, like zoo animals. Yeah, that that's I mean, kind of more the sense I I got. But. There is something very unemotional about his approach to to storytelling in general, uh, with the exception mm-hmm. of a few of his movies. But I think th- that maybe leads to weird mixed messaging um, uh, along the way. Um, a few years later, about ten years later. He makes Dead Ringers. This is one of our deep cuts. Of course, like the bulk of his of his successful horror uh, work is sort of in between these two, mm-hmm. uh, where he you know comes out with one hit after another after another. The Fly, Videodrome, Scanners, um, uh, The Dead Zone, which was a Stephen King adaptation, uh, which is maybe the least like his other movies, but is still very him in a weird way. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a little more interior. You don't right. get a, as much of that physical uh, energy, I guess, is is a word I'll use. Um, which is something I think he kind of comes back to a little later on with like a history of violence and um, Eastern promises. You know, it's a little more internalized. But again, I, I still think that one is very much like uh, uh, would your meat brain break if right. you had this information that that this you know sort of constant download of information into your brain of, of calamity uh, right I it, think it's still the, the function of the mind and the function of you know well and it's connection to the body specifically right. yeah. exactly like the uh in a lot of these movies like in the case of the brood um she develops this power to create pod children through this weird cult that she's in uh the psychoplasmatics where they're doing like um 
psychoanalysis therapy sessions that starts to change their DNA. So he's very interested in how the mind and the body connect and how turning the the intellectual into the physical and where one starts and where one begins. Well, and and I think Dead Ringers is is a perfect example of that. Uh, right. To, just to get back onto to Dead Ringers, um, because the the kind of core of this movie is about uh, Jeremy Irons plays uh, these twin brothers uh, Beverly and Elliot, twins that grow up to become gynecologists, and one of them is you know uh, very fastidious and into research and the other is very uh charismatic and very and very into sort of the politicking uh and you know getting grant money and and things like that and you know a huge part of this movie is is sort of where does one twin end and the other begin because they live these lives they live these lives as an interchangeable person like you know right. they they'll switch off between dates and between women um they'll switch off taking credit for the for who's actually doing the research and and who's operating on on someone or who's you know in a consultation with a patient so it creates this interesting situation of are they just one person you know but of course they're not they're two individual people and kind of just how problematic that can be right it comes down to his questioning of identity and yeah. his and this idea of identity fracturing in in this um, Freudian way, and they become almost like a living organ between the two of them, and that actually is that metaphor is made visually in a nightmare sequence, which is about the only like horror Cronenberg moment of the movie, although not the only one. But, yeah, I was gonna say that the, I feel like most the explicitly logical tools. Uh, right, gynecological those are tools for mutant women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, I would say this is the beginning of Cronenberg stretching what he's interested in, the type of movies he wants to make. This is a little bit more psychodrama than thriller, horror, sci-fi, but it's it's he's bringing in all those themes and interests and just putting it uh you know taking all those parts and putting it in a new engine yeah and see yeah, how it totally. functions and the first time i saw this movie when i was kind of just watching stuff way too young <laughs> um i've realized uh i could admire it because it's like yes jeremy irons is giving a career performance here in doing a you know twins and um to the point where five minutes into the movie, you forget that it's one dude doing both parts. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it is a very subtle but nuanced performance that it is... Yeah. I mean, you could write a whole paper just on, on him in this movie. I'm, I'm uh, sure people have. Um, also, the production design is to die for. This movie is yeah, gorgeous. It's really pretty. Just their apartment, the way it's lit, and it's like I love that like late '80s super angular, high fashion design kind of thing. Which, in a way, he his him doing that almost feels satirical, but it also 
I mean, it's just I love it. In yeah, it, well, and um, their their gynecology office, which is art directed to hell, but very you know, like uh, I, if right. I was a woman, I would not wa- walk in there and, and be like, <laughs> yeah, they're all oh, wearing okay, these these is- like floor length. Um, red uh, scrubs like, and like they look like the Imperial Guard, Guard or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then uh, uh, again, I mentioned the the tools. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. this movie sort of art directed the hell out of it, but but also in a way that doesn't overcome the drama. Right. Uh, it, it, it's not like you know it. it it never becomes the the star of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just some very beautiful set dressing. Right. And I think my initial takeaway when I first saw it was I probably wasn't patient enough for the pacing at the time. Yeah. I, Cronenberg in general, his pacing is, especially compared to someone like Wes Craven, who we talked about in the last episode, right? Yeah. Like, Wes Craven movies are very poppy, very... This thing onto this thing, you know, we got to set up another kill kind of. <laughs> right. And then Cronenberg movies sort of unfold. You know, they just sort of uh, uh, slowly. Flower. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before you, it's they're They're a little they're a lot more um, methodical. And there isn't as obvious demarcations of when you're. You know the the third act or the first act ends and the second one starts and and what have you, and I think I was also initially kind of thrown off by you know at the middle-ish mark of the movie it becomes a movie about addiction, but yeah. it's not a movie about addiction is what I've realized upon this watch because in my at the time you know it was the early two thousands or so when I watched it the first time. There was just so many fucking movies about, you know, people getting overwhelmed by drug addiction and or whatever. And that genre of, of indie drama was just very in vogue at the time. So there was sure. part of me that was like, oh, why did I have to kind of go in that direction? It was more interesting before that. But then watching it this time, I've realized now, like, the pill popping and all that stuff is just an extension of the metaphor. You're not supposed to... It's not a... It's not a uh, do not do drugs movie or, or, no, yeah, or it, you know, the addiction isn't pills. The addiction. No, it, it's intimacy. In, it's, it's love. It's sex. Yes. It's, it's connection. I mean, really that, you know, it's not being alone. You're addicted to, to not solitude. Like that's, you know, right. in these, it's codependency, and, but it's not codependency of a, of an addiction, it's 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 literalization of codependency in a that you truly cannot live separately from another person, and it's sort of more insidious than, say, a drug addiction, uh, because people need people need people. We're social animal. You you know mm. you don't necessarily need drugs. You can't kick. You can't one hundred percent kick your dependency on it's much harder because there is a a literal need for it right and a special case with these two characters but yeah yeah i mean i i appreciate it so much more this time around and it's uh whereas before i was always kind of like i I appreciate it academically but less so dramatic tension yeah i mean but this this time around i was like 
I I was kind of overwhelmed by the movie, and I was like, oh, this is... I'm glad that it, it ran away with our little poll we did with our listeners, and that people are still talking about it, because it is... It's not the go-to for everybody, for obvious reasons, but yeah. I hope people are catching up with it now, because it really is well, kind of something special. It's... Yeah, I mean, it's a very mature movie. It's a very... I think it takes a little bit of patience, but it definitely, I think it rewards that. I, I was, uh, I agree. I was by the ending kind of blown away. Yeah. Honest. I mean, that, that almost final sequence, the one that was, uh, brought up by Carlin is just eviscerating. Oh yeah. It's so yeah. in this <laughs> case, this is one where it has that dry intellectual sterility that a lot of his movies has, but there is an emotional payoff and it's huge. Well, and it has that dry sterility, but that's it. That's because that's who these characters are because there is this sort of warm human world that's circling around them. Uh, Right. You know, like the, the women that come into their office feel very, very human, even though they're, they're on screen for short amounts of time. Yeah. Um, uh, They're super vulnerable. The, yeah. The, the actress uh, girlfriend um, uh, played by Genevieve Bujold, Bujold mm-hmm. um, also gives a, a great, very vulnerable performance um, that, you know, has to kind of ground this movie in, in some level of humanity. Right. Actually, the movie's asking so much of her as a performer, and you don't even realize it because you buy in so completely that it's two separate people she's work- that she's working with, when in reality, she's doing – and you got to remember, movies are never made in order, you know, sequenced in order, very rarely. Yeah. So she has to keep in her head who she's talking to and what her relationship is with that person – and oh, how it the, differs. Yeah, the, the dramaturgy on this would have been, as an actor, would have been insane to sort of like <laughs> keep up with. Right. It, it, and I mean, again, I know we kind of talked about it, but just Jeremy Irons' performance to me is like the new gold standard of one person playing two people. Like, yes. I, I, it sort of seems like every, you know, in my head, every time now is just sort of an imitation of trying to capture this. Right. Yeah. It, I, I would say it is the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. Dead Ringers. It's it's uh, kind of a 10 out of 10 for me. I think it's sort of a, per- a perfect movie. Uh, yeah. Highly recommend. Uh, we're going to skip quite ahead further into our last deep cut here, which is Cosmopolis. So in the 90s, Cronenberg made a lot of movies, um, kind of peaks and valleys. He makes, you know, stuff like uh, Existence and Crash, which is definitely extensions of what he was doing in the 80s. He also makes the movie Naked Lunch based on the William Burroughs novel, which is just like a psychedelic body horror nightmare. Also recommended. And uh, he he makes subtler stuff like M. Butterfly and Spider uh, that don't get quite as much attention. And then into the 2000s, he makes this kind of hard shift like solidly genre material, but a genre that he'd never really approached before in crime fiction doing a history of violence, which is based on a indie comic book that nobody read. 
and Eastern Promises with Viggo Viggo Mortensen. It it was like the second wind that I was not expecting from him. And I don't know. If yeah, I mean, was. it's it do, it doesn't always happen, uh, you know, with these, especially with horror directors that sort of get big when sort of genre was uh, on full display. Um, well, when you've it, and think, when you've so solidly captured your aesthetic and your uh, thematic drive, and I I think that Cronenberg as Cronenberg that sort of reaches its ceiling at Crash. Like, you cannot get more Cronenbergian than that film uh, before it becomes self-parody. And there are some who might say that that movie does. That's a movie that I've tried four or five times to fully get on board with. And that movie, I'm still at the point where it's like, I can intellectually un- understand it and I, I respect it. But it is it is not a movie that wants to be liked. Um, and I would say sure. s- the sister film to Crash is Cosmopolis, which he made after he made a couple crime movies that were fairly big hits. And then he made uh, what was that movie? The A Dangerous Method with uh, Vigo and and Michael Fassbender as a uh, young and Freud which was terribly boring and ordinary. Uh, yeah, I, I never saw a dangerous method. Um, I uh, Obviously, yeah, A History of Violence and Easter Promises are both great. They're classics. Uh, and then you made me watch Cosmopolis for this, which I had not seen before. Right. In a way, I kind of feel like this movie, the, the, the point I was trying to make in all that spiel was that after making... A dangerous method and it not really going anywhere either with critics or audiences i feel like he was like okay well i'm gonna kind of go back to what i was doing before then and he kind of starts where he left off with crash i i do enjoy this movie more than crash but again it i would i would describe this movie as a movie that doesn't want to be liked yeah and i didn't love love it <laughs> um it's Cold is an understatement. Right. This movie is iced out. It is what you said about to the point of becoming self-parody. I feel like this is dangerously close to that. Uh, It is so... I mean, there's no humanity to this movie. And that's the point of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's interesting stuff going on in this movie, for sure. And I think it kind of earns it with the very ending. I I wasn't sort of expecting anything to kind of draw me in uh last minute like that. Mm. And then I was like, "Oh, okay. I get I I kind of get this now." Um Well, you have Paul Giamatti but, who just comes on and just tells everyone, "I'll show you how it's done." And he can deliver <laughs> any dialogue. And this is this the whole movie is this very stilted, very stagey, very inhuman dialect. Like it, it, yeah, I mean, the movie is is sort of talking about itself instead of characters yes. talking to each other. Yeah, it, it is. There's a lot of uh, pontification. <laughs> In fact, the movie sort of feels like a, a collection of one acts. 
Yeah, um, but a collection of one acts where the characters are saying exactly what their character represents and what they're doing on stage. Like it, it has has a level level of surrealism and absurdism to it. Like it, yeah, there's. I think this movie's almost making fun of how almost making fun of art films. Like it's so on the nose with everything. Mm. Um, especially the, the character that like cream pies him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this movie's kind of making fun of high art in some ways. Uh, well, it's definitely having well, a discussion a- about high and low art. And it's, I mean, it's the whole movie is, is a, uh, deconstruction of, class politics basically i mean it's it's actually interesting this movie came out in 2012 because it feels like it maybe this is just something he's good at doing as far as the projects he gets attached yeah. to or what he's reading at the time that he's inspired by but um uh, it's very easy to just imagine this as a day in the life of elon musk sure yeah and I Absolutely. guess we should describe what the movie is. So basically, uh, you have Robert Pattinson, who's playing a uh, some sort of hedge fund billionaire who's hermetically sealed in his spacecraft-like limousine on his way to get a haircut. And we get these little interactions along the way with these various different people in his life. At some point, he learns that there's somebody who may or may not be trying to kill him. And there's also a famous hip-hop artist who is blocking traffic with a with a, brig- a brigade. And there's... Uh, a, and the president's in town. The president's in town, which is also blocking traffic. And there's... Um, kind of this descent in from from like a wall street i mean this is all shot in in canada this is shot in i think toronto but it's like toronto supposed to be new york but it's still obviously not new york but again that almost (laughs) kind of kind of like when kubrick did that with eyes wide shut it's it's not supposed to feel like anywhere real so it's sort of to the movie's favor um yeah and also, uh, you know, along the way, like a, a class war breaks out. Yeah, there's um, these there's these riots. This is very close to around the time of like Occupy Wall Street was in the air, um, and there were like you know a handful of Occupy movies that came out, and this would definitely be in that world. But like I said, it feels it feels like this. Some you could easily write this as a day in the life of Elon Musk because that's kind yeah, of what it, this. Is commenting on slash feels like. I've also heard well, this it, movie described by another critic, and I thought this was a great description. Is uh, imagine this as they live from the aliens' perspective. Huh. <laughs> okay, yeah, kinda. I, I, I mean, I can. It, it is very alien. I mean, this movie. It's funny, yeah, that you mentioned it comes out in t- 2012 because I feel like this movie is saying. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen if we don't change what we're doing. Like, this this isn't how it is. I, I mean, this is how it is right now. But mm-hmm. this is that taken to this sort of cartoonishly cold level. Right. That, and it, it was I sort of like, science fictionalizing the trajectory we were on. And I just didn't, I don't know if the movie knew how close we really were to exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, they're having these conversations very, yeah. of of when rats become the new monetization. I'm like, uh, that's Dogecoin. You're just describing crypto. 
Well, yeah, and well, I mean, literally NFTs. Like, yeah, uh, we should start. We should start a, a dead rat cosmopolis NFT line. <laughs> I um, mean, they're they're very they're very easy to make. They had just they just have to look like shit and be worth nothing. Right. Exactly. It all sort of culminates to this uh, this big confrontation with Paul Giamatti at the end. Um, yeah, which is probably the best sequence of the movie and the best way to end it. But no, I I kind of feel like this could have been a short film. Feels like several well, short like films. It, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It, like it, it. I mean, this is glacially paced. Like it, it is. And it, again, it all kind of like to me the only part that really said anything interesting was the Paul Giamatti sequence. And part of me is like, would that have worked without the rest of the movie? I'm not sure, but I would have been willing to find out. I don't know. I didn't love this one. Like it kind of, I mean, like you said, it, it it's, I, I agree. It, it sort of doesn't want to be liked. It is, it is a challenge. Uh, it is, off-putting in just about every way. Yeah, this is actually one of the first movies that Pattinson did out of Twilight um, when he was yeah, sort of reestablishing his that, career. It has that I'm trying to shake off my teen idol image kind of thing, but it also, like, I, it almost feels a little stunt casty, but in a way that works, you know? Right, because... There's a certain stiltedness to his, especially at that time, to his performance, you know, him doing this slight New York accent, American accent, and also delivering this bizarre dialogue. Um, yeah. I do think it works. There's, he almost, he, he does feel inhuman. He feels like a, like an android. He feels like a, oh, a yeah, vampire. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think he absolutely works in the role. I it, it, It's just, it's very interesting to me. I still kind of come away with the same thing, which is like, while I'm watching it, I'm not having a ton of fun. And I really have to lean in and sort of find the rhythm of the dialogue because it's so stylized and it's it's so talky that it's mm-hmm. easy to, for it all to just kind of sound like like a hum, like a, like a mosquito in your ear after a while because the dialogue is like so pitched. Uh, specifically, well, I mean, a but, lot of it I feel is intentionally saying nothing. You know, it's a lot of back mm-hmm. and forth that means nothing. Like, you know, they're sort of all speaking in these didactic, weird, metaphorical language that isn't real. I, I mean, I don't think it's a. I think there's plenty. They're saying plenty of things that's definitely about things. Um, I. What I, I mean is I they're think not... You, you can spend a lot of time dissecting into each of these little interactions and pulling out, you know, what what these these little uh, allegories and, and what have you are saying. Um, I, I think the, the interaction he has with Samantha Morton, who plays his... Um, who plays like a philosopher who just comes in to talk about... Uh, you know, his place in humanity, why the writers feel the way they do, but why he should feel superior nonetheless. Um, or the, 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 the even weirder interactions he has with his wife. Yeah. Yeah. Versus all of the, of the infidelities with like Julia Binoche. And it, it's, it's a weird cavalcade of characters that, that come in and out. I, 
every time I watch this movie, while I'm watching it, I'm it feels like work. But when I'm done watching it, I'm like, no, I I do like this. This is good. I just it's just it's not one I can I, watch more than maybe once every four or five years. Yeah, I here's the thing. This is one of those ones that intellectually on paper I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think it's an interesting experience. I don't think I have to ever see it again. Uh, I, I I don't know. I didn't. Yeah, it does feel like work. It feels like I watched Dead Ringers and then this. Just That's a tough act to follow. Very, yeah. Yeah, it's very jarring to go from, I think, one of his most human movies yeah. to this, which is so cold and so slow and intentionally obtuse. And then right. I went on to Rabbit and I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm back to having fun again at least. Yeah, and of of these three movies, um, Rabbit is definitely the most like Halloween approved. Like, if you're gonna watch one of these it, this month, that is probably the one to watch. If you just want to see gore and viscera and whatnot, spooky, spooky, yeah. um, and Marilyn Chambers nude for half the movie. Um, sure. Yeah, who doesn't want that? I mean, you know, if you're gonna pay for Marilyn Chambers, you might as well. Um, she was an adult star of the '70s. We should probably put mm-hmm. that out there. Uh, before she was in uh, Shivers and this movie. But yeah, uh, I'll, we'll complete this conversation with the way we did last time. What is your favorite David Cronenberg film? And not just of the three we, we went in depth with, but overall. Yeah. Before we say that, I do want to point out that uh, I think we mentioned it last time, but we have not seen his new movie that came out this year yet. Uh, right. Crimes of the Future. Um, yep. We're both very interested to to get to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard a lot of sort of hype surrounding it. Uh, just have not had the opportunity yet. Um, yeah, I've been, I was looking radar, at so. ranked lists, you know, listicles, and uh, it ranks pretty high. And I don't know if that's just recency bias or whatever, but that didn't help some of his other movies uh, that people, you know, hated out of the gate. So... I have expectations for it, but I I, I do want to get to it before the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, my favorite. This is hard because uh, yeah. he does kind of have these different modes that he goes into. I would say probably just my favorite. I think the one I could probably watch the most would be The Dead Zone. I liked that a oh, whole lot. Interesting. Um, okay. I mean, I also, I've been reading a lot of Stephen King lately. Uh, sure. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's something just there's just something about that movie that I connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very good. I would actually say it's super it, underrated because of, of those listicles, it, I always felt they were ranking that one way too low. It would be like around 9 or 10 or something. I'm like, that should at least be in the top 4 or 5. Yeah, yeah, I... Definitely one of my favorites, and I think one of the better... I haven't read the book yet, uh, but I I think just, you know, one of the better movies that's based off of uh, Stephen King's material. I I Uh wouldn't say adaptation, because I don't know how close it is, but... um, For me, that's in the conversation with Videodrome and Dead Ringers for probably my favorite. Um, I do like The Fly a whole lot, too, though. Like, right. I mean, like I said, that run through the 80s is just nuts. 
It is. It is. I, I'm interested the ones that were your go-to, because none of those were what I thought you would have picked. Um, oh, interesting. I, I thought for okay. sure you were going to say The Fly, because most people have seen The Fly. It is his his landmark work. It's usually where you start with his work. It, it sort of says everything he's about, while also being one of his more populist movies. Um, sure. Uh, I, I think... Maybe if I had, I have not seen it in quite a while. Um, I'm actually due for a rewatch on that one. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, I, if I had had time, I was going to try to give that one a rewatch. But yeah, it's, I don't know. Have was, you watched I, that with Ashley yet? I don't know. You I should run so. that by her because that's fun to watch with other people who haven't watched it. Um, in fact, oh yeah. So gross. It is definitely. I think it's his grossest movie. Yeah, it's 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 kind of punishing to to view with uh with some, especially if they don't know what they're getting into. But I'll tell a funny story about that before I tell my favorite Cronenberg movie. When the movie came out, the movie was produced by um, Mel Brooks Studio at the time, and Mel Brooks was interested in other stuff besides comedy, but. They didn't know, I guess, exactly how to market the movie. And the only th- other thing people knew about The Fly was that it was a remake of like a B-horror film starring Vincent Price from the 50s. And, you know, that movie's fun in its in its own right and kind of a classic of sorts. But the remake is nothing like that, obviously, other than the concept, kind of. When they invited all of the heads of studio to come and watch a final cut or a rough cut of the movie... They came in with knowing, not knowing who David Cronenberg was necessarily, but but knowing that Mel Brooks was involved. And they handed everybody who came in these little, like, bug antennae to wear while you watch the movie. Like, you know, a headband with springs and balls. And yeah, so yeah. They're, <laughs> they're sitting there wearing these ridiculous ante- antenna and then just watching this devastatingly sad and depressed yeah grotesque um study of human decay you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's incredible yeah i love that story but yeah i think the fly was the first movie of his that i ever saw and it's probably the one i've seen the most for me it's it's a split between three i can't really choose a favorite because I think they're all, they all do it really well. In fact, you know, Dead Ringers might even slip in there. I'd have to live with it a little bit longer because um, I haven't seen it as much as the other two. But for me, it's between The Fly, uh, Videodrome, and The History of Violence. Yeah, I, I had a feeling uh, A History of Violence was going to be, be on there, uh, which is great. Um, I mean, it is a really good movie. It's just, when you know, when you say your favorite Cronenberg, I just, my mind goes to that. To, to the eighties, yeah, know, to like, that hot streak in the eighties, and history of violence has a lot less of his hallmarks. Um, mm. He's it, it, there's definitely discussions of identity and things like that that kind of come along yeah. with the, the noir genre, and he finds his way into into it. And there's a certain brutality to the way he deals with with even crime violence that is very him, but both in the history of violence and Eastern Promises. But I mean, just as a film, I just think it's like a just a perfect movie, really. Yeah, um, it's, it's great. And full of great performances. Ed Harris and Maria Bello is also really great in that. John Hurt won a, or William Hurt. Anyway, so 
those are probably the three. Of course, I don't have anything to add to the fly other than it's it's great. It's tragic. It in a way, it kind of feels like a like like a universal horror as done through yeah. Cronenberg in the eighties. Um, because uh, yeah, I totally get that because it, it's it's sort of it, it's a tragic monster, and that yeah. isn't something that we get a whole lot. And then um, Videodrome, which is one we haven't talked about really, uh, is I think that's where Cronenberg See, to me like, that is fully Cronenberg. fully realizes his his place his in the universe. Superpower, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is to me that is, and that's kind of why, like I say, it has to be in the conversation because to me that is Cronenberg at his most Cronenberg. Like that is yeah. just. If you had to give somebody one Cronenberg movie to watch to understand who he is, I it's that. Yeah, because it it kind of does everything. It has like the B horror elements to it, but it also has the body horror. But it also has this this very intellectual stuff. You know, the, the bringing in like the Canadian influence of like a philosopher Marshall McLuhan's ideas and media and technology and media is an extension of the human body. And, you know, the, the medium is the message and all of that stuff. Uh, and then the way that even that theme carries on to something as less literal as Cosmopolis, where you could definitely and crash where the car becomes an extension of the human anatomy. Yeah. Um, so in a it's way, a it's the movie you... he kind of keeps making <laughs> ever since he made it. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. If you haven't seen it, uh, give it a watch. What's up, listeners? Force 5 is a show about movie-related top five lists, hosted by me, Blacklist screenwriter and ex-video store cinephile Jason Kleberg. I have a new guest on each week, and the guest gets to pick the topic. Past guests have included film directors, screenwriters, actors, critics, comedians, rappers, artists, and other podcasters. Love or hate our picks, you're guaranteed to walk away thinking, what would be on my list? Search Force 5 wherever you get your pods, or head to force5podcast.com. Okay, let's move on to our review of Hellraiser, uh, which just dropped on Hulu. This is a reimagining. It's not really a remake. Go ahead and give me the premise of 2022 Hellraiser. Yeah, I I would say it's a reboot, I guess. Like yeah. all the old stuff could still be in continuity, but it, it doesn't sure. rely on that at all. Yeah, but uh, also yeah, so it this- would not be the first time it's rebooted. There's like 20 ass Hellraiser movies. I was going to try and what? watch them all and stopped around six or seven. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And they get <laughs> real bad. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it kind of works to continually be reboot though, because just like the nature of the Cinnabites and the puzzle box, like you can just sort of throw it into any sort of drama Mm -hmm. and, and it works in a way I think different than maybe like a, a Freddy or Jason, you know, it's, it's these eternal demon angels you can set it uh, in a gothic mansion. You can set it in the past. You can set it in space. You can set it on the internet. All of these things have been done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to varying degrees of success. So in this particular installment in the in the fun adventures of Pinhead, this is a, about a, a young woman 
uh, Riley, who is dealing with addiction. Um, she's just coming out of like a halfway house and uh, living with her brother to try and get clean. She gets hooked up with this guy who, you know, her, her friends and her brother are warning her that he, he's no good for her. Uh, he convinces her to break into this estate warehouse, essentially, to see if that, you know, there's anything valuable that can be sold. Uh, he, he also triggers a relapse in her. They break into this estate, uh, this, this warehouse, this storage facility, and, uh, find the puzzle box, the famous, uh, Hellraiser lament configuration thing. Uh, I don't know if it has a specific name. I guess just puzzle box. And as she's messing around with it, uh, her brother inadvertently gets <laughs> sacrificed to uh, the Cenobites. And the rest of the movie is kind of about her trying to figure out what this puzzle is and if there's a way to to save her brother. Yeah. It's worth mentioning, and you know, we also learned that there, the the person that this estate belonged to, um, had some some pretty nefarious plans to try and make a deal with these Cenobites, and and his story kind of crashes into theirs. Right, and people might hear Cenobite if they don't know what Hellraiser is, they might hear Cenobite and think like some sort of insect. Um, these are basically like sadomasochistic flesh demons. Bondage. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're bondage demons, but to the, the utmost degree. Uh, so uh, I mean, I feel like most people would recognize pinhead, uh, the iconic monster, mm-hmm. but then there's like the chattering demon who's like face is pulled back to nothing but teeth. And he sort of chomps at your little bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, Vagina demons, there's dick <laughs> demons, there's chain demons, there's... It, it, it's very uh, psychosexual, erotic by way of, you know, sort of um, uh, Giger-esque body horror in a different way from Cronenberg. It's, it's, it, the idea of them is all sensation is connected, uh, pleasure and pain, and... They are they are sextronauts uh, continually searching through the outer reaches of existence uh, to experience all sensation. Yeah, it actually would have been interesting if Cronenberg of a different era, probably not now, but like, let's say, 86 or so, had made one of these movies, like what sure. his take on that would have been. Yeah. Um, especially when he was dealing in like a lot of prosthetics and and uh, uh, latex realities and that kind of stuff and goos and, and yeah. Uh, not to say that Clyde Barker's original is not sort of visionary in its own way, and you know it was made on a shoestring budget. He didn't even really know how to direct a movie at the time, but put together a pretty slick, stylish little movie. Uh, that doesn't date nearly as bad as you would think, considering all those things. Largely yeah. because that era of of creature effects and uh, makeup design and and these types of things have held up really well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's true. Like the demons and the blood and guts age better than a lot of the fashion, which is kind of fun. Um, right. Yeah. Because the, the real villain of the original Hellraiser isn't the Cenobites, but it's uh, the shoulder well, pads that are going on. <laughs> throughout that movie. Well, uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because <laughs> generally the Cenobites are not the the real villains of the movies. They're sort of this they're sort of this force of nature yeah. that exists on the periphery of of our existence. They're right? chaotic neutral. And they aren't evil. They're they they don't have a moral compass. They they are yeah. bound by whatever weird fucking space sex laws they are bound by, you know? So they don't they don't pick people really based off of moralistic questions. They pick whoever solves their fucking puzzle. Um Right. You see this happen every every so often with a horror franchise where the actual story that was being crafted was one thing you know basically it's like this Edgar Allan Poe uh, maybe a little bit of uh, a lot of bit of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft kind of styled gothic horror about a evil stepmother who's trying to bring back her ex-lover from the dead using the occult and you know the Cenobites just happen to be part of that but it's really it's really a kind of a murder serial killer murderer kind of thing about this this evil lady and this you know teenage daughter trying to who's catching wind of it, um, and, well, the, and the, sort of the being gaslit. One. Yeah, the the original. Yeah, so it's very gothic romance. It's very um, a telltale uh, heart. I mean, romantic. You know, it, it is it is a damned love. Uh, right. You know, instead of of doomed love it's it's damned like this love leads them to become these evil creatures and uh, uh, pinhead and the cenobites kind of restore balance they they're they're you know they kind of uh set things right most of the time <laughs> in a weird way right exactly and but because of the 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 design of of the cenobites and sort of like sort of how they just fit in the the 80s S&M club culture industrial goth zeitgeist that was in the air, they sort of took on a life of their own. And when they started sequel sequelizing this, Pinhead and the Cenobites started to become more and more prominent figures of the series to the point where it became all about them. And they, they start giving like ridiculous backstories about where Pinhead comes from and then blah, blah, blah. All the stuff we don't care about as far as i'm concerned it goes further and further away from clive barker's original sort of literary ideas of death and romance and forbidden love and all that stuff well and and that i think brings me to to this movie um which you know as a reboot um i think i think this movie does deal with some interesting ideas of you know ad addiction and redemption and uh outside of the hellraiser lore you know like yeah it, it takes a little while before we 
even see Pinhead in this movie. Um, yeah, I would say the the approach to the to the Cenobites here, um, as far as screen time goes, they sort of split the difference between the first film where they get maybe five minutes, six, seven mm-hmm. minutes, maybe, um, overall in the 90-minute film, uh, towards the later ones where it's all about them. Like, this one is kind of tries to find a happy medium where it's like, we know the fans expect to see a pinhead. They expect to see the weird S&M chains and blood and guts and stuff. So we'll give them a lot of that. But we also want to tell a human story in this that we're kind of keeping our focus on. Yeah, and and I think I think I do think this movie does kind of one better than the other. I would agree, but I'm interested to find out which one you think they do better. I think they do the I I liked all the the hell stuff. <laughs> um yeah. I liked all the the lamentations and the tortures and 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 things like that. I think this movie kind of suffers a little bit from not the sharpest script. Yeah. Especially early on, I felt like a lot of the characters are just, you know, doing that thing that I hate that happens a lot in modern movies where they just talk about exactly what their deal is. Yeah. And not that the actors are bad, but they're not like the strongest actors to kind of sell some of this stuff that is a little stilted anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the characters kind of took me a little while to even give a shit about. This movie was written by someone who understands the idea of a drug addict, but has never met one. Uh, like they, they just they don't talk like that. You know, they don't they're not that open about anything uh they're gonna lie to you at, at every turn um granted she is in recovery right and they try they uh, there's the difference between you got to give a character motivation and yeah overselling yeah. that motivation to the point where the character and all of the other characters in interaction with that character become unbearably annoying I had a yeah, hard time exactly. with this movie because I hated everyone in it. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't even I... think the performances were that bad. I don't blame the actors so much. But every single scene, it's just a fucking argument. It's like you're with the most... It's like it's like being in Walmart and hearing kids cry next to you in line for an for nearly two hours. It's like, just shut the fuck up. Like well, talk and, about and anything else. Exactly. And again, what, what bothers me about it is it's, it's just not an honest portrayal of what that's like. You know, it, it feels like, Oh, they're, you know, she's an addict. So that's going to be high drama. So right. they're going to be fighting. And it's like, when it first started, like, the first, like, uh, when they introduce her and the character and she's dating that guy. and you Yeah, know. It's, that, that was such a weird introduction to the characters because it's, like, it's setting it up more like a sex comedy. I was, I was because, actually like, okay whole- with all that. I thought, like, we're making it about this, this girl and her situation and, and I was yeah. okay with that. But it just never evolved past the surface level of that. And... And it's, I mean, it took me until she literally said it was her brother. So almost, you know, like halfway through the movie for me to realize that was her brother. Right. I thought he was like her sponsor or she was like living in a 
you know, uh, uh, like a recovery home or, or something just they were like that. Like friends or something like that. Yeah, I I didn't know. I thought I might have missed a like uh, line of dialogue or something, but because that it didn't occur to me till she literally said the word brother. But that doesn't really have any bearing on the plot one way or the other. Um, no, no, no. It, it it just gives her like you know a script thing. Like it gives her a want. Yeah, uh, to follow this rabbit hole. Again, it's just very surface level writing. Uh, it, it at the beginning, it's just very like not good. You know, it's not even like a character study. <laughs> it's just sort of faux drama. Yeah, a you lot know, of it felt a- like a lot of it felt like uh, uh, college level acting class scene work. Where, totally. yeah, and I don't I, mean that as again. I'm not saying no, no, these no, are no, bad I, actors doing that. It's just like a combination of the dialogue and they, they approach every scene at the exact same pitch, which is near hysterical and crying. And every, there's everybody is just really shitty. Like nobody's helping the situation. You know, I want to be concerned for her, but she kind of sucks, but maybe that's somewhat expected given her circumstance. But then all of her friends and everybody who's supposed to be supporting her kind of suck worse. And yeah, I just had a really hard time with this movie and felt like I I could not well, and, penetrate and, it because I just didn't care. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think I think it's kind of a squandered opportunity because I, I think the idea of, you know, addiction and having to make an active choice of wanting to live or uh-huh. or following this process that will lead to your obvious death and, and painful death and destruction. Like, I think there's something there. It's just, well, I think hey, the word, I, I don't need the goddamn metaphor spelled out for me. I don't need you to say it in the first five minutes of the movie. I don't need scenes where it's just, uh, like you said, uh, this yelling, give me a scene where they're walking on eggshells watching the fucking real world, or, uh, that's such a dated reference. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, give me a scene where Right after Hey Dude, when they're watching on TV. Um, Give me a scene where they're doing character work without saying everything their character's about. Right, exactly. Uh, and without just expressing themselves as this raw emotion. Um, I yeah. think the word that you used that I think is essential to why these characters are awful, active choice. Nobody in this movie, with the exception of one character who we don't find out what their deal is until way too late in the movie for it to be interesting. Um, yeah. Which is, I also nobody is making an active choice. Everybody here is a passive character. And so when you have five passive characters who are just at each other's throats, the whole movie for no real, I mean, I mean, yes, there is a reason, but it's not a, a reason that is in, in conversation with the genre and with, with the other action of the movie, you know, one of the things that made the original Hellraiser and even some of the bad sequels, uh, interesting as they always focused on or followed bad characters. And by bad, I mean evil. Like they were, these are people with intentionally bad decisions and people who were, who were 
misguiding people on purpose. And, you know, those are more interesting characters to follow than this group of CW rejects. Yeah. No, I I agree with you completely. Uh, All that being said, the movie does the icky, sticky, cosmic gore stuff good enough to at least win me back a little bit. Uh, You know, the first Mm -hmm. half of this movie is kind of insufferable. But once they kind of get to the house and start putting the puzzle box together, I at least have that to kind of hang on to. And I think that delivers on a genre level that that worked, uh, you know, well enough for me. Like, I don't think this reaches the heights of the original Mm -hmm. uh, by any means, but there's some cool deaths. There's some cool cosmic thinking kind of going on. And I I just wish the rest of the movie also just the pacing picks up way better as it kind of moves from set piece kill to set piece kill. I agree. Yeah, no, I visually, I like the way Bruckner does the Cenobites, the way he portrays, he like, he taps into that Clive Barker thing, but he's definitely bringing his own spin to it. And there's, there's still a physicality to it. It isn't isn't all just CG, which would have been very easy to do in today's climate just to digitalize it all but he he it still feels physical it still feels in the room with you um i like the way that he creates different atmospheres through the lighting the production design is very nice and and deliberate and stylized in a way that doesn't feel too cartoony when it works it, it really works but it felt like a missed opportunity to me because the human well, especially element which you can tell everybody on Especially, set feels like they're trying to make that movie, but it's just not happening. Well, you know, maybe another year also, this wouldn't have stood out as much of a problem. You know, I, I feel like this is maybe a little closer to on par with like the Candyman reboot. Uh, but, you know, this has been such a good year for horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has been... You know, the same year that we got Prey, which also completely revitalized a dead franchise. So it just, those seams showed a lot more than they maybe would have. But at the end of the day, I just didn't need this as much as I needed something like Barbarian. You know what I mean? Right. And so it feels more like a missed opportunity and it just feels a little slighter uh, than if that first half had just been tighter had been just kind of pieced together a little bit better a little bit better written i think this movie could have been something more yeah i mean i agree i think the problem starts on the screenplay yeah uh, the approach is is kind of misguided but you know the visual storytelling is still spectacular um yeah and uh jamie clayton as the new pinhead uh is great it's i think a great take on the on the character, you know, we've seen uh, Doug Bradley do it a thousand times. They tried to do it again with a new actor in like 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, and it did, it didn't really go anywhere. But I thought this take really felt scary and original and and new but familiar in the right ways. Totally, yeah. I, this is this is how you reboot a, a character like this that you you know. Yeah. Uh, I agree completely. I, Pinhead was the highlight of this movie. 
absolutely. And the, the weird fucking Cenobites just in general looked great, looked scary. Yeah, um, I like some of the yeah, um, like- the additions to the mythology of the puzzle box, the way that the different configurations mean different things and that there's sort of a cycle that yeah. that goes along to it that there's there's a countdown aspect to it that I thought was uh, an interesting plot mechanic. Um, I, I wish it had been used to the service of more interesting characters. But yeah, I, I thought that they yeah, it, expanded it, it it, the it, mythology in, in intelligent ways. I agree. And, um, and without, without ruining kind of the mystery, without delving too deep into the lore stuff that doesn't matter, you know... Again, I thought all of that stuff was done really well. I, I really liked the second half of the movie. I just wish the first half had been, you know, strong enough to to make this more of a highlight for me. Yeah, uh, I agree. So for me, this is a C. And I feel like I'm kind of being generous. Because there's a, there are things that I like. But I mean, even if you're looking at this director... A movie like The Ritual, which he made for Netflix, is leaps and bounds more interesting and better and, you know, smaller budget, but well, and, a truly and scary original film. And this just it kind of feels like a bad TV pilot to a Hellraiser show. <laughs> kind of. Um, yeah, I, it's funny that you bring up The Ritual because, like, plot-wise like actual story and, and story function of like the characters uh, is very similar to a Hellraiser story. You know, like you could change yeah. out that ancient monster at the end for Cenobites and it, you wouldn't even blink. Yeah, you know both, what I mean? They're both interested um, in pagan horror. So same with Southbound. So I, I totally understand why he was uh, ended up with this project. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm close to you. I'm similar. Maybe, you know, I tend to skew a little more positive. I give this a B minus. Um, I think Ooh. the Hellraiser stuff really works, uh, but you just got to kind of wade through some some nonsense to get there. Yeah, I guess if we're if we're grading on a curve of just Hellraiser projects, there's so sure. many of them and so many of them are unwatchably bad that this would be like a B plus <laughs> on the yeah, scale of yeah. like, if you're, if this is probably the best Hellraiser movie since like Hellraiser three, but sure. um, I would still say the first two Hellraisers are vastly better. And uh, even the straight to video Hellraiser Inferno, which was one of Scott Derrickson's first films who did the black phone oh, this year. Um, is uh, kind of a gem in the Hellraiser pile, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at with it. It's um, it's mid, as the kids say. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think especially this year, there's just kind of no excuse. Yeah, there's an embarrassment of riches as far as horror goes, and we've damn near become a horror podcast this year because um, it's always the most interesting stuff coming out and accessible. I've seen at least three or four great horror movies this year that are, you know, not just great for this year, but it, it's fo- has some tough acts to follow. Yeah. 
Um, but there you go. If anybody has anything to say about anything we've discussed on this podcast, your favorite Cronenberg film or your opinions on the new or, or old Hellraisers, um, you can send us your opinions on Instagram and Twitter at MacGuffinPod, or you can email us at MacGuffinPod at gmail.com. Yeah, you can also read reviews that I write every now and then for the Idaho State Journal at uh, the com under their arts and entertainment page. You can also follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, and then be sure to leave a five star rating and a one sentence review at whichever podcatcher you use to listen to the show Spotify or iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Player.fm, whichever one you. You use if there's a rating function, please rate us and be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, also, uh, follow my improv comedy show on Instagram at uh, Improv versus Stand Up, uh, all one word. And uh, if you're interested, you can always check out a show at Mockingbird Improv Theater. All right. And that is the episode. Death to the Videodrome. Long live the new flesh. <laughs>